Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so nice to see you all. Uh, my name is Matthew, and um, it's just a true honor and a, a privilege to be able to bring God's Word uh, to you this morning. Um, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Jacob and Esau, particularly Esau selling his birthright. And I have to say that this is a doozy of a passage. Um, and so uh, pray for me um, as, as I deliver God's word this morning. But I want to begin by just simply saying that the, I think that the best theologians are not ivory tower academics, um, but are those who know God and are known by God. Those who know God, who are known by God. They are people of prayer. And they also happen to be good psychologists, I think, in the truest sense of the word. They're physicians of the soul. They know the soul's sicknesses because they know what it means to be healthy. They have contemplated the face of Jesus, the perfect human. They possessed and are possessed by scripture. They have learned through personal experience and wisdom of the church throughout the ages. And one of these particular people, theologians of the church throughout the ages, is the 7th century um, theologian Maximus the Confessor. And uh, Maximus said something like this. He said, there are three powers of the soul. The thinking, the desiring, and the excitable. By the thinking power, we seek to understand what is good. By the desiring power, we desire the good we've understood. And by the excitable power, we strive and fight for it. Now that's a lot. So he talks about three powers of the soul, the thinking, the desiring, the excitable. In a word, these could be considered the mind, the will, and the appetites. All powers of the soul when they're ordered, are ordered to the love of God. And Maximus says this. He says, if a person's mind is constantly bent toward God, bent toward God, their desire also increases. Their will increases in its longing for God. And the whole of their excitable power, all of their appetites are transformed into the love of God. Now, I think the opposite is also true. If a person's mind is constantly bent toward whatever is not God, their desire also increases that longing for whatever is not God. And the whole of their excitable power is transformed into love of whatever is not God. And that's what we call idolatry. We're all very familiar with this, at least I am, um, which is the greatest of disordered loves. <clears throat> and Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the word see here means more than visual seeing. It's not just an optical thing. It suggests that first one has been made capable of seeing God, what we call the beatific vision, because of love of God. And seeing God in this way means that they're becoming like God. They're being transformed. They're being transfigured. And so purity of heart allows us to see and love not just God, I think, but all things in their proper way. This is what I call the um, Radiohead theological maxim, um, everything in its right place, right? For those of you who like Radiohead, and I will not sing uh, that particular song. I've 
Thank God. We are capable of loving all things when our loves are ordered to the love of God. We can see all things as God's gift, and we won't mistake in them for God. We have to see all things. We will be able to see all things for what they actually are in this, in this state of purity of heart. And insofar as we do not see God and everything else purely, then we're failing to recognize their value, their worth, and therefore we're incapable of making an appropriate, fitting response of love that they deserve. I begin with that introduction because I think that we're seeing the powers of the soul at work in each of our characters in their own way this morning in our text. As we enter the Genesis passage this morning, I want to try to do so with sensitivity to its brevity, but also its density. And the fact that there, this is a really ancient text, right? And it's very foreign to our sensibilities. There's more here than we might see at first glance. Um, and there are ways that we would want to read this text that would strike our ears differently than would strike an ancient reader's ears. And so I want to try to do justice to all of those, um, Lord helping me. And so let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can enter into your word, this Genesis text. Lord, it is so rich. And Lord, it conjures up so many echoes of scripture, so many places, Lord, in which we uh, see the echoes resounding in our hearts. And so, Lord, would you open our hearts? Lord, as we've prayed this morning, open our ears, open our mouths. Uh, Lord, may we not fail to obtain the grace that you would give to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we study this uh, introductory story of Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, I want to especially focus on Jacob and Esau, but more particularly on Esau. Um, I think our passage has something to teach us about our dispositions um, and how our dispositions are being shaped by what we love and how we love. Because each of our characters in this story are on a journey, just like we are. And, and the, in this particular story, their journeys extend all the way through Genesis chapter 36. So we have a lot more to learn about how the story ends. Um, but this, this story this morning will not tell us the whole story, but it gives us important, uh, a beginning point for us to begin to make sense of who and what they are. So if you look with me in uh, verse 28 in your, in your bulletin or your Bible in chapter uh, 20, uh, 25 of Genesis. And here we are told that Isaac loved Esau. We're also told that Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, the last time I checked, parents are not supposed to have favorite children, right? Um, you, none of you have favorite children. I know that. Um, but what, something's happening here. What might be going on that one parent favors one child and the other the other? Something significant is here that reveals the kinds of loves that are operating in this family. Because I think we can trace the development of their loves through the longer narrative, as we'll see through chapter 36. The love Isaac and Rebecca have for each of their sons mirrors, I think, something of each of their sons' characters' dispositions that have been shaped by their own loves. So I want to take a look at Jacob and Esau, and then we'll return to Isaac and Rebecca as well. So look with me at verse 27. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now we're getting a glimpse into the adult lives of these men. We're told they've grown up. We know nothing of their childhood, nothing apart from the symbolic story, the strange circumstances of their birth, which we'll turn to in a moment. But I want to make really clear here, Jacob and Esau, 
they might be sounding to our ears like they're two different kinds of outdoorsmen. You know, Esau, the Cabela's shopper who hunts deer, fishes for bass and muskie, drinks a Miller Lite while he grills a haunch of venison over an open flame. Right? Jacob, the hip REI shopper who enjoys a quiet camping trip, reading poetry and fly fishing for trout, while he smokes his pipe with his golden retriever named Scout, of course, <laughs> resting at his feet, right? Now, I have to make a confession. I am both of those people in, in, in the deep aspirations of my heart, I think. Uh, but that is not who these people are, at least not, not that extreme. Uh, rather, the text, I think, is giving us clues about the brothers' developing dispositions. Their way of life reflects something of their moral character oriented and shaped by their loves. In an ancient Jewish and Christian context, Esau isn't merely a hunter-woodsman as we might think of him. He would have been seen as what we might call a primitive man, right? Uncouth, unkempt, wild and restless, lacking self-control. He's controlled by something more of his animal or carnal or fleshly desires, that is his bodily appetites, right, that impede his ability to make good judgments. Ancient readers might have drawn attention to how Esau's name and his physical features suggested something of a physical parallel to his character, his inner heart. He's hairy. He's described as having come out of the womb red, and his body is a hairy cloak, again, accenting this primitivism. But if that's true for Esau, then Jacob, we might call, was a pastoralist, right? A pastoralist, one whose simple way of life lends him to quiet reflection, ordered, civilization, we are perhaps meant to catch a glimpse of Jacob's developing sagacity, his, his strength of mind, his powers of judgment, his developing wisdom. Perhaps we've already seen this in Jacob's name, which sounds like heel, or one who grabs the heel, or one who follows at the heel. This reflects Jacob's birth order, yes, but it also seems to presage something of uh, Jacob's wise, and we might say craftiness, um, trying to win the advantage. Now, if we use the language of the seven virtues and vices, uh, which some of us might be familiar with, Esau, we would say, would be controlled by the vice of gluttony. Jacob would be leaning more toward the virtue of temperance. Within our Christian psychological framework, these three parts are the powers of the soul. When we're given over to gluttony, we surrender our mind and our desire, our will, to bodily appetites, and we're mastered by them. And there are different kinds and degrees of gluttony, of course. There's no one-size-fits-all. Perhaps we overindulge in food and drink. We use food to medicate. We become dependent. We're led along by our stomachs, not our minds. Temperance is gluttony's opposite. The temperate person orders their appetites for food and drink within the bounds of what is reasonable and good for them. That is, what does not threaten to pollute their rational capacities, desires, and ability to act in the right way. The temperate person knows the limits of what is good for them and what's bad for them and maintains those in their proper place. But we, might, we must be careful here. Already we're taking, making character judgments about Jacob and Esau based on what we've seen in the text so far, as if Esau possessed like all vice and as if Jacob were all virtue. But you know the rest of the story as well as I do, and that is just not true, right? It gets really complicated. But look with me at verse 29 through 34. 
we're going to get more of a, a, a deeper glimpse into the character of Jacob and Esau. Once, it says, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which is the word for red in Hebrew. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now it's clear that we're meant to learn a lesson from Esau here, but what is that lesson? We're told that Esau despised his birthright. The birthright in the ancient world was a material inheritance that Esau as the firstborn son would have customarily received. This would include a double portion because Esau would assume ultimate uh, control or, or responsibility rather for all members of the family. It's important to note here that the birthright, I think, is not the same thing as the blessing. And when we hear the word blessing in these chapters, both this chapter and the, chapter that will, the chapters that will follow, we must think of the Abrahamic blessing. The son who receives that blessing would be the offspring, as the scriptures say, in and through whom God would continue to work to ultimately bless all the nations. And perhaps we can think of the difference this way. The birthright has everything to do with earthly human inheritance and responsibility. The blessing has everything to do with spiritual divine inheritance and responsibility. Esau and Jacob's destinies will unfold over the course of the next 10 chapters and the nations that come from them over the course of the next millennia. But here is the origin story that is trying to make sense of both of those as they wrestle. Look at verse 23. We're told here um, that Rebekah received a word from God. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. These are the words of a prophetic oracle Rebekah receives when she inquires of the Lord, it says concerning this unnatural activity happening in her womb. Rebecca, like Mary, as we read this morning, was greatly troubled and tried to discern what all of this might mean for her. Notice, again, the Lord speaks to Rebecca. The Lord doesn't speak with Isaac. It's curious. I think this may give us a clue about why we have been told that Rebecca loved Jacob. But as we return to Esau, what does it mean that he despised his birthright? One commentator translated the word despise as misprize. Misprize. And I think this is a helpful word. Esau, that, is, that Esau misprizes his birthright means that he failed to recognize its true worth, its value. How is that? What got in the way? The text gives us a lot more than the ESV translates here. In verse 30, look there, when Esau says, let me eat some of that red stew. That's very bland, right, and pedestrian. Let me eat. It's like, let's, let's go to Chipotle, right? We don't feel the gravity of the original language here. 
Esau's request is really more ravenous than simply let me eat. It's more like swallow, gulp without swallowing. Or without chewing, excuse me. How can you swallow without swallowing? Swallow and gulp down without chewing. Which you might be thinking would make sense if he were to the point of exhaustion, as it says. You may be even wondering, how did Esau fail to see its value? There's more value to a human life than a material inheritance, certainly. He was about to die. Jacob tricked him. Certainly, whatever smarts and sagacity Jacob possesses are on display in this moment. Jacob may be temperate for the time being, but he doesn't seem just or noble. Jacob is opportunistic, yes, and he takes advantage of the situation, yes. It has made me think, does he know about the oracle? I'm not sure. Does he take advantage of this opportunity? It's it's impossible to know. But there are clues in the text that suggest that the author of Genesis may be emphasizing that Esau could have been exaggerating, or that his exhaustion, his famishment, is a condition or a consequence of his overindulgence. In verse 34, the text tells us that Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Do you hear how quickly that just sort of skipped along? The quick pace and terse description at the resolution of this scene has suggested to some commentators that Esau just skipped off, having satisfied an impulsive, immediate appetite. Even if he were in dire straits, it is hard to imagine that he couldn't have found another means of gaining food or recovering his strength without bartering his birthright. But we just don't know all the details. The story is meant to communicate a moral picture in broad brushstrokes. Esau serves as a type, an example. His gluttony has bent his mind, blinding his ability to see the gravitas of his birthright, what it was really worth, and to love it and value it appropriately. And this has me also reflecting on Isaac's experience. Recall verse 28 and following. We've already suggested that Rebekah may have loved Jacob because of her knowledge of the oracle, the prophetic word. But we're explicitly told that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. What is more, I've pondered how in the case of Isaac, he has had to wait 20 years before he received an answer to prayer. Did you catch that? He was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, and he was 60 years old when she gave birth. We don't know all the reasons that motivated Isaac to pray. We're not told that. We're not told when she would conceive, but simply thinking about waiting for an answer to prayer for 20 years, how would that shape your desires? How would that shape your mind? I think we'll learn more about Isaac in the chapters to follow. But let's turn uh, again to Esau. Now, we didn't have a reading from the book of Hebrews this morning, which I wish we did. So I'm going to read it to you. Not the whole book. Um, The author of the Hebrews singles out Esau and confirms uh, that Esau is a type. He's an example of someone whom he calls unholy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. And if you don't have your Bible, just listen carefully and maybe return um, after the service, which I'm sure all of you do. You all read your Bibles after church. That was a joke. Thanks for some of you who left. Chapter 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy 
like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Such a sad and tragic story, isn't it? Um, Other translations of the Bible render this word unholy as profane, unspiritual, godless, worldly-minded. It'd be interesting to go back and read various translations of this passage. There's a lot we could learn from that. But Esau's condition really spoke to me as I was preparing this sermon. As we are all here moving toward the end of summer following over a year of pandemic pandemonium, I've reflected on my life lived during the pandemic. I've become aware of the ways my appetites, right, showed up and struggled to gain the mastery over me, my will, my mind. Maybe you can relate to that. Whether it's gluttony or whatever else, whatever appetitive desires have attempted to gain the mastery over you. How the wilderness time of COVID-19 didn't it it reveal our loves, the orientation of our minds, our hearts, our wills. Maybe you're like me and have struggled at times in your life when you thought that you had failed God so much that he had rejected you. That's a struggle I've carried with me at various points in my life, right? Doubting salvation, doubting God's love for me, right? feeling that God would surely reject me or that I had surely rejected him and it was too late for me. But if we read this passage from Hebrews, we'd be tempted to think, just this passage that I read, that Esau was a goner. There's no hope for Esau. That he's past the point of no return, that there's nothing more that can be done. But friends, this is not the gospel truth. And it isn't all of what we read in Hebrews. Reading what he says about Esau in the full context, the author of Hebrews offers a strong warning using Esau, yes. But Esau is an example from the old order of things. Now, I'm I'm going to, we're going to look at some of the parts of Hebrews that are like mind-blowing. Okay, and you have to like hold on to your seats, all right? And you got to really grip it. Okay, you got to go into the Bible with me here. This, this old order of things of which Esau was a part, the author of Hebrews suggests is part of the old covenant. Hebrews 12, 20 says, they could not endure the order that was given. They could not endure the first covenant. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that the new order of things has dawned in Jesus. And that people like Esau are examples and types for us to learn from. In the beginning in Hebrews 12.1, the passage we all know so well, I'm sure. Therefore, the author says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The cloud of witnesses of chapter 11. Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. The cloud of witnesses were not perfect people. They had weights, they had burdens, they had sins that clung so closely. And he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The Esau warning is nested in this same language, if we look closely, that we've heard in chapter 12, verse 1, 
Therefore, it says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Chapter 12, verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Do you remember Esau's exhaustion? How famished he was? The author of Hebrews remembers. He knows the weariness that he experienced under the weight of his sin and his disordered loves, the experience of being lame, wounded, broken, at the point of death. But friends, there's hope in Jesus. There is still a birthright and a blessing for any who would look to Jesus for grace, for strength, for healing. There's food for our exhausted, sin-sick selves. Esau's love of God and neighbor was imperfect. Jacob's love of God and neighbor was imperfect. Isaac and Rebekah's love of God and neighbor was imperfect. Esau may have relinquished his firstborn rights to the material earthly blessing in Genesis 25, but it is not certain that he was denied God's ultimate blessing that would fully flower in the new order of God's kingdom brought about by the death and resurrection of the ultimate chosen son of God, the chosen son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Curiously, if we look at 11.20 in Hebrews, we read, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And if we read further along in Genesis 33, Esau does does receive a blessing at the hand of Jacob. It says there, please accept my blessing. This is Jacob speaking. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. Thus Jacob urged him and Esau took it. Now imagine with me. What if What if Esau had a chance to be born again and to enter a second time into his mother's womb? What if he'd be like baby John the Baptist, who in Elizabeth's womb, we're told, leapt for joy at the greeting of Mary, who would give birth to Christ? Jesus, by the way, we're told, would reign over the house of Jacob. There's a greater Jacob. And he would reign forever, and of his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Look and listen with me to Hebrews 12, 22, as the author of Hebrews shifts attention to this new order. But you all, you all have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering. And don't miss this. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Friends, Jesus does reign over the house of Jacob, the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews says that we have come, all of us, to this heavenly company. We are the assembly. We are the church of all the firstborn children of God. Every person who has ever looked to Jesus, ever will look to Jesus, to be made perfect by his grace and by his blood, whoever will be baptized into his death and into his resurrection is now a firstborn who inherits and shares the life of the firstborn. The firstborn son of God, Jesus Christ. And Jesus offers his birthright and his food without money, and without price. For exhausted, sin-famished people like you and me who would repent and turn to him. Not unlike Jacob, he's prepared a healing feast for us. Let us make haste to eat and drink and rise and go his way and obtain the grace of God. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.